Let's open up our Bibles this morning to John chapter 7. John chapter 7, we're going to be looking at verses 14 through 31. 14 through 31. It is the week of the booths, the week of the feast of the booths, or tents. Remember, we learned that booth means tent. Jews from all around the area, even beyond Judea and Samaria, have come in for that week. It's about this time of year. It was a fall celebration where they celebrated the delivery out of Egypt. Jesus, because the Jewish leaders we learned last week were trying to kill him, they wanted to seize him and kill him, and because Jesus said, most importantly, my time has not yet come, okay, told his disciples, go on in a couple of days before the feast. And a few days later, Jesus came in behind them privately, silently, okay? But now in verse 14, we're in the middle of the week, and we see Jesus getting up in the temple, and he starts teaching, And we know because of verse 14, the reason why he didn't go with the disciples wasn't because he was afraid, because if he was afraid, he wouldn't have got up in the very middle of the Feast of Booze in the temple and start preaching. So stand together and let's read God's word together, verses 14 through 31. Verse 14, but when it was now the midst of the feast, Jesus went up into the temple and began to teach. The Jews then were astonished, saying, How has this man become learned, having never been educated? So Jesus answered them and said, My teaching is not mine, but his who sent me. Excuse me, I want to make sure that my thing was on. If anyone is willing to do his will, he will know of the teaching, whether it is of God or whether I speak from myself. He who speaks from himself seeks his own glory, but... He who is seeking the glory of the one who sent him, he is true, and there is no unrighteousness in him. Did not Moses give you the law, and yet none of you carries out the law? Why do you seek to kill me? The crowd answered, you have a demon. Who seeks to kill you? Jesus answered them, I did one deed, and you all marvel. For this reason, Moses has given you circumcision Not because it is from Moses, but from the fathers. And on the Sabbath, you circumcise a man. If a man receives circumcision on the Sabbath, so that the law of Moses will not be broken, are you angry with me because I made an entire man well on the Sabbath? Do not judge according to appearance, but judge with righteous judgment. So some of the people of Jerusalem were saying, is this not the man whom they are seeking to kill? Look, he is speaking publicly, and they are saying nothing to him. The rulers do not know, do not really know that this is the Christ, do they? However, we know where this man is from. But whenever the Christ may come, no one knows where he is from. Then Jesus cried out in the temple, teaching and saying, You both know me and know where I am from, and I have not come of myself, but he who sent me is true, whom you do not know. I know him because I am from him, and he sent me. So they were seeking to seize him, and no man laid his hand on him because his hour had not yet come. But many of the crowd believed in him. And they were saying, when the Christ comes, he will not perform more signs than those which this man has. Will he? Let's pray. Father in heaven, as John wrote this, he has in mind that people might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. 
and that by believing they might have life in his name. So, Father, your spirit move. John, the apostle who wrote this gospel, moved him with that in mind. So, God, I pray that everyone who is in ears distance of this message, of this passage this morning, would walk away if they don't know now, knowing Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. That is the ultimate intent. It is the ultimate purpose of this passage and of the gospel itself. And God, we do not pretend one bit that just because one attends a worship service that one is saved. We never want to make that assumption. And so God, I pray that those who are part of the body, members of one another in Christ, we will walk away refreshed and renewed. But God, I pray for the soul that might not know you, though it looks like it on the outside, superficially. On the inside, they could be very far from you. I pray this hour would be the hour of their salvation. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. You may be seated. Again, I want to pick up in verse 15. We understand the occasion in verse 14. In the middle of the week, he gets up in the temple of all places, and he begins to teach. But look at verse 15. The Jews then were astonished. The astonishment or the surprise in verse 15 that we read about indicates that many in the crowd had never heard Jesus before. Remember, it's the, it's the Feast of Booths, so people from a large area had come to Jerusalem and set up tents, and we even talked about out of Leviticus how it included palm branches, okay? And so a lot of these folks had never heard Jesus. He had been to Jerusalem. He'd even performed signs before, and he told them that he was one with the Father. We see that in chapter 5, and that's why the Jewish leaders, whose home base was where? Jerusalem, where the Feast of Booths was taking place, okay? They're out to seek to kill him. They wanted to seize him. They wanted to see him dead because he was a threat to them. But these Jews in verse 15 were the ones who really basically heard him for the first time, saying, how has this man become learned having never been educated? People who have pilgrimed were just astonished. Not astonished that he knew a few verses. Not astonished that he could open a, you know, say or refer to a few Old Testament passages or make a hookup with him and them, but how he could sustain a, a discourse with Scripture, okay? He can carry on a sustained discourse in the amount of Scripture he could quote to the degree that he, in their minds, this guy had to be educated somewhere, but he never associated himself with a rabbi. No one knows. But his command of the scripture tells us he's even more educated than our rabbis and the Pharisees and the Sadducees and, and the whole council of Jerusalem. How could he carry on such a sustained discourse and not be educated by one of our own? You see what's in their minds now? Here is the son of Mary, the son of Joseph, stepdad, okay, stepfather, okay. Here is this man from Nazareth, not associated with any rabbi. And he had this command of the Old Testament scriptures, 
like they've never seen or heard before, even better than their own leaders of the Sanhedrin. And so you see them scratching their head in astonishment and wonder where to get this from. Now, we've got to understand this. I want you to notice this. You know, when you write a doctoral dissertation or you write a paper, you have footnotes or you have endnotes, right? So every time you, you write something in a paragraph that's very pointed or something very important, you've got to document your source. So that's what they were thinking. Are you with me? This is kind of like a contemporary understanding of what was going on in their minds. They're going, he's not citing a source. What rabbi did he get it from? Who was his teacher? Okay, this is what Jesus says. Verse 16, my teaching is not mine, but his who sent me. What is Jesus saying here? He's saying this, my teaching does not come from any earthly human source. It comes from my father. Remember, remember, overall in the gospel of John, he is emphasizing the deity of Jesus Christ. That's the emphasis. And, and, the, and to really believe in Christ, Jesus Christ, you must believe that he is from God, that he is God, that he is the son of God. And that means, where did he get his teaching? From the Father. It's very poignant here. It's very pointing. And in verse 17, he goes on to affirm that any sincere person, one one who is genuinely out to do the will of God, will understand the source of Christ's teaching. Look at the next verse. If anyone is willing, verse 17, if anyone is willing to do his will, there's one thing, a willing, a desire, the willing to do his will, he will know of the teaching, whether it is of God or whether I speak from myself. You know what Jesus is doing here? Here's a lesson for us. This will be one of four lessons this morning. Here's the first one. Jesus is fusing together the, des- the understanding of Christ in his word with the desire to do it. Wow. You know, it is John who says this, I'm writing this gospel so that you might believe. But throughout the weaving of his gospel, the writing of his gospel, he is giving us characteristics of what this belief looks like. And right here is a tremendous characteristic of true saving faith. And it's not just True saving faith understands that Jesus' teaching is from God, that it's divine, and it doesn't come from an earthly human source, but it also wants to do what it says. Because it's from God, I want to obey it. At least I desire to do that, and I will strive in doing that. That is true saving faith. That takes faith. He's describing faith as that which is beyond an intellectual understanding. It involves intellectual understanding. It involves sound doctrine. But it goes beyond that to the heart, to where the heart goes, because of that, I want to do what it says. So I'm in the Word of God to find the will of God. Again, verse 17, if anyone is willing to do what? His will. So why are we in the Word of God? Because we're wanting to know the will of God because we are willing and desirous to actually do it. And the simple translation is I want to obey God. That's why we hear the preaching of his word. That's why we have devotions. That's why we have quiet times. That's why we have ladies and men's Bible studies. It's not just because I want to gain further information and be able to articulate sound doctrine. That's good. It has its place. 
And if anybody understands that, it's me. Okay? But I know very well in the bottom of my heart and soul that is not enough. It doesn't stop there. It's not just about me coming on a Sunday morning and espousing to you accurate doctrine and accurate exposition. But I got to come to this pulpit because I too want desire to follow in its steps. Because in the truths of God's word, we find the will of God himself. And I am here to take on his heart. So to be in the word of God is the desire to take on Christ's heart. Isn't that beautiful? That's the lesson from these few verses here. That's John's goal. His goal is to get people to believe that Jesus is the Christ. In Forrest, right here, as well as many other places throughout this gospel, he gives us a picture of what this true saving faith is really like. And that Christ's teaching is not from any earthly human source, but it's from the Father himself. And therefore, because of that, every word can be trusted and acted upon. That's why we don't tolerate people who attack the Word of God. You know, it, it, it stands on its own. God does not need me to prove His Word. It proves itself as it transforms our lives. Amen? All right. So that's the lesson in verse 17. It, look at it like this, and it kind of get a little simple illustration a coin. And on the one side of the coin, it says, Jesus is teaching his truths are from heaven. That's the source. It's from his father. On the other side of his coin, on this coin, it says, I want to do it. I desire to follow in its steps. What's that coin called? Not a nickel, not a dime, not a penny, not a quarter. It's called true saving faith. How's that? Kind of wrap that up right there. Okay. He continues on in verse 18. Listen to this. He who speaks from himself seeks his own glory, but he who is seeking the glory of the one who sent him, he is true. And there is no unrighteousness in him. Speaking of himself. He whose message originates with himself seeks to advance himself. But Jesus is saying, my message didn't come from myself because I'm not here to seek advancement of myself, but my father and his kingdom. Jesus denied himself, right? He took up his cross and he followed the Father. He asks us as he tells not ask, he tells us as disciples to do likewise. If anyone wishes or wills to follow me, take up your cross, deny yourself, take up your cross daily, and what? Follow after me. Christ could do no other. Christ came not only with the truths of the Father, the truth of the Father, but he came with the interest and the attitude and the desire to walk in those truths. And that's what made him so different. Stop right there. If that's our chief shepherd, then that should be the aspiration of all his sheep. Right? Beloved, that's what should make the church so different from the world, the believer from the unbeliever. As Christ came to seek the glory of the Father, we are made alive unto Christ so that we too may seek the glory of the Father. 
This is in contrast to who? Who? The Jewish leaders. They would always cite one another, rabbi citing rabbi, you know, as compared to Jesus. And they were totally in the what? The advancement of their Judaism, which i.e. meant the advancement of themselves and their position and their own self-esteem or their esteem before the people. They wanted to have first place in everything. They wanted to sit at the head of the table. That was their attitude. That was their mindset. That was their heart set. It's because they were unregenerate. And so they were ego and pride-driven. Here's the lesson. Lesson number two. True Christianity seeks to advance Christ, not self. It advances his kingdom, not mine. Not an earthly agenda. It's a heavenly agenda. True faith asks this question as we continue with this second lesson. How can I honor God in my situation or in my circumstance? Not first and foremost, how can I get out of it? But first and foremost, how can I honor God and, and show him in it first and foremost? Oh, God, I do want you to take me out of it. But until that day or until that hour, how can I honor you in it, whether I got myself in it or not? Whether I'm lying in bed with cancer or whether I dug my own hole in a relationship. God, here I am. And now, because you've opened up my eyes and, and, and you've tugged on my heart and gave me this desire to honor Christ beyond all else. Oh, God, I took a step backward today or yesterday, and I'm reaping some consequences. But from this moment on, how can I honor you in the midst of it? Confess your sin. Ask for forgiveness. Make things right. Right? Depending on the circumstance. Or if you're just lying there in a hospital bed, Share Christ with the nurse. I learned that one the last many weeks from Dub Plyler. I went and visited him one of the number of times I went to visit him. He said, I had an opportunity to share the gospel with one of the nurses. And so we talked for him. I'm sitting there going, I'm just, you know, I go there to be a blessing and to, you know, minister to somebody. And that man, I'm just like, I give up doing that. You just minister. I mean, this is a blessing. And, I, and that's a true story. I'm not making this up. So true Christianity seeks to advance Christ, not oneself. It asks always, God, how can I honor you in this situation or circumstance? How can I make you known? How can I live or what words can I say in such a way that will elevate you in the eyes of this person who is next to me or this person who comes in my life, my neighbor, my friend, a nurse, fill in the blank. In verse 19, Jesus backs this up. Jews had an attitude. We all know that. Okay, the religious leaders in particular, but the Jews in general had an attitude, and it was this. Because we were the recipients of the law, we were a holy people. Because I hear the word of God preached, I'm holy. Well, Jesus comes now into this thought of theirs, and he tells them that there is a difference between receiving and obeying. That's why he has verse 19. Did not Moses give you the law and that none of you carries out the law? Yeah, you've received it through Moses. Moses gave it to you. But here's the question. Here's where the rubber meets the road. You really doing it? Are you really carrying out the law? Are you walking in it? And then to nail the coffin shut on them, look at the last phrase, verse 19. Verse 19. 
Why do you seek to kill me? Uh, hello? It's a violation of the law. <laughs> you see what he's doing here? Let me give you one little short, quick illustration of you're not keeping it. You're wanting to kill me. At least there's a group of you overall, you know, the leaders for sure. But later on, that attitude was growing amongst the population, right? So in months from then, he's going on the road to Golgotha. He's traveling with the cross, and he's going to die. Why? Because eventually, the attitude of the scribes, the Pharisees, and leaders permeated the general populace of the Jews to where, crucify him, crucify him. And the Romans, in their total ignorance, just went along with it. Moses gave them law, but they did not keep it. <laughs> the fact that you're wanting, wanting to kill me is proof in the pudding, so to speak. Verse 20, the crowd answered, you have a demon who seeks to kill you. Remember, in this crowd, from a lot of this crowd, the majority of this crowd, remember they were pilgrims who came for that one week, okay? Many of them had never heard Jesus before, and many of them were also, therefore, not in tune that the Jewish leaders wanted him dead. So they're like, well, what are you talking about? You're crazy. That's not true. You see what's going on here? This, John is developing this great dialogue between the general crowd in different segments within the crowd with Jesus, okay? That's what's going on here. They were unaware of the plot to kill him, that plot that came from the leaders we read about earlier on in chapter 5. So that's why they responded this way. Basically, it's their way of saying, you're mad. You're mad. I never thought of killing you. Verses 22 and 23, Jesus responds by referring to one work he did on the Sabbath. Verse 21, I did one deed, and you're all marvel. Verse 22, for this reason, and I'm going to explain 22 and 23. Are you ready for this? Okay. Uh, we're going to read it, then I'm going to give you the point. Okay, here it is. Because it's not easy at first reading. For this reason, Moses has given you circumcision. Not because it was from Moses, but from the fathers, okay? Circumcision began with the patriarchs. It didn't begin on the mountain when Moses received the law. It began before that, hundreds of years before that. So circumcision's first. Then Moses in the giving of the law happened, okay? But in the giving of the law in Leviticus and other parts, circumcision was what? Included, but it had already been given, okay? So that's what's going on here. Here's the point. Here's what Jesus is saying. <clears throat> Circumcision started with the patriarchs and not Moses, but it was included in the law. And in the law, it was like on the eighth day of a newborn child, male, you would have him circumcised on the eighth day. But here's the kicker. What happened when that eighth day came on the Sabbath? They circumcised. They went ahead and did it. See what he's bringing up? So binding was their understanding of circumcision that if the eighth day of a newborn fell on the Sabbath, they'd go ahead and circumcise them. That's how high they elevated circumcision. They understood its significance. And the ceremonial need of circumcision meant that they would not override it on the Sabbath. However, they did not like Jesus' healing on the Sabbath, right? And so Jesus point is this. Certainly, if you could circumcise an eight-day-old male on the Sabbath, what is wrong with me with healing a person on the Sabbath? 
Now then, one verse puts this all together. It's found in the Gospel of Mark, chapter 2, verse 27. Let me read this. Jesus puts it into perspective in Mark 2, 27, when Mark records him saying, quote, the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. And then he says this, so the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. Here's the creator, the one who established, created, made, and gave the purpose of Sabbath, the one who dictated circumcision. Here he is before them all, and he's saying, I'm Lord of this. Here's, I'm the one that gave it. I'm the one that established it, and you're trying to tell me what it's for, what I can and cannot do. Here, I'm wanting to heal a whole person, and you're just wanting to circumcise. Now, with that mindset, go to the next verse, verse 24, because now verse 24 makes sense. Do not judge according to appearance, but judge with righteous judgment. Ah, it's in that context of their confusion. They were judging Jesus' actions with an incomplete understanding of the truths of the Old Testament scriptures. Notice, a couple of things here. Number one, notice he does not tell them not to judge. Uh-oh. Do not judge according to appearance. He doesn't say, I just want you to stop all judgment, period. He says, no, your judgment, we all judge, but we're to do it rightly. They were doing it wrongly. But to judge with righteous judgment, if you're going to judge, do it right. Question, question, please listen. How do we do it right? According to Scripture. Let the Scriptures do the judgment for you. That's why we as Christians, we discern right from wrong. Discernment is another form of judgment, is it not? We as Christians live in a fallen world, and it is our responsibility to point out what is of the Lord and what is not of the Lord. That is a judgment call. But how do we make that call? By being immersed in the Scriptures. It's like saying this. I'm adopted by my Heavenly Father who placed me in Christ, okay? He redeemed me. But my father happens to be a judge. And now that I'm adopted into his family, I'm learning my father's judgments. So that when I'm walking in this world, when I'm making a judgment, I'm doing it according to the truths of his word. But how often do we hear people in Christian circles, not to mention non-Christian circles, don't judge me. You're not supposed to judge me. Time out. No, yeah, I am. Now, I don't judge you unto condemnation. No, it's not our place. That's Christ. That's our Lord's. All judgment is given to who? The Son, not the body, but the Son. However, as we walk in this world, we discern right from wrong. How else can you practice church discipline? According to Matthew 18, right? Judgments are made all the time. So here's the lesson. Allow the Scriptures to make the judgment for you. And if you're not constantly in the Scriptures, you're in danger and most often will make unsound, wrong judgments. Verse 24. And that's what they were doing. And our judgments are superficial. Because here's another lesson from this. We only oftentimes see what's on the outside. We don't really see what's going on inside that person's heart unless you get to know them. That's why when it comes to church discipline, when elders are looking into a matter, they have to investigate, 
investigate, investigate, investigate, and that takes time, right? Got to get all your facts down. Make sure there's another cooperative witness or two or something like that before we come to a judgment on that person, right? And have to make a call one way or another to continue on with church discipline. Does that make sense? So we see all that embedded right here in this passage of Scripture, verse 24. Uh, write down next to that, if you will, a parallel passage. I do not have that in my notes, but I think it's very important. Uh, great, no, it was in my mind. Man, whew. Okay, no, it's in, it's in 1 Corinthians. Somebody help the preacher out. 1 Corinthians chapter 5. Yes. Whew. Okay. All right. Just real quick. Uh, verse 9 through 13 of 1 Corinthians chapter 5. Write that down and or if you want to be there, I'm just going to read these verses. I wrote you in my letter not to associate with immoral people. I did not at all mean with the immoral people of this world or with the covetous and swindlers, or with idolaters, for then you would have to go out of the world. But actually, I wrote to you not to associate with any so-called brother if he is an immoral person, or covetous, or idolater, or reviler, or drunkard, or swindler, not even to eat with such a one. Now, verse 12. This is where it applies to the passage we're in this morning. Verse 12. For what have I to do with judging outsiders? Do you not judge those who are within the church? You get the question? You get the point? We're to be doing that. We, within the church, particularly, Paul's saying, with, amongst one another, we are to discern where, where are my brother or sister is at based upon their actions or the way they talk, their speech. It, it, we make those calls. It's, it's part of church life. But we must make them because we've been immersed in Scripture or we should, not dare, we should dare not make them, is my point. Okay? I wanted to back that up. Let's go on in our text. Let's go on to verse 25 through 31. Uh, in these verses, really, John focuses on the response of the crowd. Okay, the response of the crowd. And we're going to deal with that more next week. Uh, what I want to do here is I want to close by focusing on verses 28 and 29. Focus on verses 28 and 29, which says this. Then Jesus cried out in the temple, teaching and saying, You both know me and know where I am. From And I have not come of myself, but he who sent me is true, who you do not know. I know him because I am from him, and he sent me. I mean, he's debating about who he is, and he cries out to them, indicating with some emotion in the temple, he's saying, you know who I am. Yes, I came from Mary. Yes, Joseph, but he's my stepdad. I'm from Nazareth. But what I want you to also know that ultimately I'm from my father. Basically, it's kind of like an indirect reference to the virgin birth. Right? You do know me. You've, you've heard me teach. You've heard what I've said. The, the, the leaders certainly know what I'm saying because they're out to kill me because of what I'm saying. You've seen the signs. And that's spawned from 25 and 26. Is this not the man whom they're seeking to kill? We said that. Look, he is speaking publicly and they are saying nothing to him. The rulers do not really know that this is the Christ, do they? They raised a question, but then they go, then they forget about it and go on to verse 27. However, we know where this man is from, but whenever the Christ may come, no one knows where he is from. He's from the Father. 
He's from the Father. You merely are thinking his humanness, that he's from Joseph and Mary and from Nazareth, but he's, he's, his deity is what John is focusing on here. So he reiterates his origin, knowing the crowd, particularly the leaders, are not going to like it. Here's the thing. Here's the lesson. Jesus continually spoke the truth even though he knew he would suffer for it. He didn't change the message. He did not let up. He didn't twist. He did not water it down. He never shied away from speaking the truth. That's all he could do because it was from the Father, and he and the Father are one. And Christ prays in 17 that we would be drawn into this oneness. So one of the applications of that is this. So when we speak, we are speaking the truths of God's word. Or at least God's word has been renewing our mind, and therefore shaping our thoughts, so that when we speak, it is, it is reflective of Scripture. Wow. Isn't that powerful? Again, under pressure, under the risk of persecution, being reviled and suffering, he did not shy away from the truth. This lesson is for all of us, particularly preachers and teachers, but for all of us. Christ is an example of faithfulness to the truth. Wow. And there was one man that was there that time that heard all this and later on wrote about it. His name is Peter. Not just John, but Peter. And I want you to go to 1 Peter chapter 2 for a moment. And we're going to wrap up with this last lesson, so to speak. A lesson for all of us. That we should never shy away from the truth, speaking the truth, sharing the truth. Never shy away regardless of the circumstances. Peter, who was a witness and who would later on look back and write this portion of Scripture, said this, 1 Peter chapter 2, 21 through 23. Listen to these words. For you have been called for this purpose. Stop right there. The verses leading up to verse 21 in 1 Peter 2.21 is talking about how we suffer for the sake of righteousness, how we suffer for doing what's right, which we learn about where? What's, do, what's doing right? Speaking the truth, being honest. People don't need to hear my opinion. People need God's opinion. They don't need my take on what's going on. Well, what's your take on humanity? <laughs> Who cares? I want God's take. You need to hear God's take on it. Listen to this. For you have been called for this purpose since Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example, there you go, for you to follow in his steps, who committed no sin, nor was any deceit found in his mouth, and while being reviled, he did not revile in return. While suffering, he uttered no threats by, what did he do though? But contrast to those things, what did he do? He kept entrusting himself to him who judges righteously. What is he saying? Peter's saying, I witnessed my Savior, no matter what was happening to him, he was faithful to the truths of the Father. And what does Peter say? He's an example for us disciples. And he's an example for the church, for us today in 2018. Hey, that's why Paul comes along and says, speak the truth, but in love. Couch it with a loving attitude, with a humble attitude, but always speak it. Don't water it down. Don't change it to fit the audience to give them what they want to hear. And if they don't get it, don't run over them with it. Love them with it. Understand it took you a while to grasp it. Understand this. The reason why I grasp it, 
is because of the gift of the Holy Spirit indwelling me and giving me understanding. I don't understand more than anybody else because I'm smarter than anybody else. It is a work of God. So when you share the truth, do it very humbly and very lovingly because you so are passionate about their soul. You want them to get it because that's what they need, the truths of the gospel. And the final lesson is what I just said. Christ is our example of how to be faithful to the truths of God's word, but we're not going to be faithful if we're not consistently in it. That's why there's Bible study. That's why we encourage devotions. That's why there's the preaching of God's word on Sunday morning. Because the children of God live for thus, saith the Lord. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord God, thank you for this time together. Thank you for the nuggets of lessons that are found in this truth of your word. And Lord God, I pray that we'd walk away refreshed with the gospel, but a renewed energy a renewed commitment to spend time in your word. And that's what it's for. It's, it's, it's a huge gift. It's a life-giving gift. The word of God is alive. It's living. It's sharper than any two-edged sword. You tell us that. And, and, and God, because it's alive, we know it'll do that living work in us. It'll renew our minds. It'll shape my words so that when I speak, my words will be seasoned with grace, ready for those who are here and it will be thoughtfully thought about and words that have been thought through and words that will edify and encourage and exhort and will comfort according to whatever that person's need is at that moment. But God, it will also shape my feet and my hands and my eyes and my ears. Your word will shape my eyes and tell them what they should and should not look at. It will shape my feet and tell me where and where I should not go in my hands and what it should do or should not do, what it should touch and not touch. Oh, God. We want your word to permeate our hearts so it shines forth through our words and our actions and everyone we come in contact with so that the world will know that you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.